The Creative Nonfiction Podcast is sponsored by Goucher College's Master of Fine Arts and Nonfiction. The Goucher MFA is a two-year low-residency program. Online classes let you learn from anywhere, while on-campus residencies allow you to hone your craft with accomplished mentors who have Pulitzer Prizes and best-selling books to their names. The program boasts a nationwide network of students, faculty, and alumni, which has published 140 books and counting. You'll get opportunities to meet literary agents and learn the ins and outs of the publishing journey. Visit goucher.edu forward slash nonfiction to start your journey now. Take your writing to the next level and go from hopeful to published in Goucher's MFA program for nonfiction. My, my, my. Can you believe it? Welcome to the Creative Nonfiction Podcast, the show where I speak to the best artists about the art and craft of telling true stories. Leaders from narrative journalism, doc film, memoir, essay, radio, and podcasting stop by to share their stories and how they go about the work so you can apply those tools of mastery to your own work. I dig it to you. I'm Brendan O'Mara, and would you look at this guest for episode 120, Eli Saslow. Pulitzer Prize winner and fellow Oregonian. He's also the author of Rising Out of Hatred, The Awakening of a Former White Nationalist. He's a staff writer for the Washington Post, and he joined me for a wonderful conversation about his work. I'm telling you, Eli is one of the good ones, folks. You can tell just by talking to him that he's one of those energy givers. You know what I mean? You talk to the guy and you want to go out and do your best work. He like he just gives you a lot of heft behind behind whoever you are fact is his work alone makes you want to go out and do good work because it's top-notch and major league and inspiring in the way he goes about it his latest book is a masterpiece so you need to go out and buy a copy for you and a pal it's published by double day eli is at eli saslow on twitter and you can visit his website elisaslow.com for links to his work of course, you can visit brendanomera.com for show notes and links to his work and, of course, other goodies. You're going to learn a lot of great writing and reporting tips from your time spent listening to this show. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. If you're feeling froggy, leave a rating and a review. Also, Follow the show and me on Twitter at CNFPod and at Brendan O'Mara. Head over to BrendanO'Mara.com to sign up for my monthly newsletter. Why not? I give out reading recommendations once a month. No spam. Can't beat that. Now it's time for the show. But first, another word from our promotional sponsor for this week's episode. Today's podcast is brought to you by Creative Nonfiction Magazine. For nearly 25 years, creative nonfiction has been fuel for nonfiction writers and storytellers, publishing a lively blend of exceptional, long, and short-form nonfiction narratives and interviews as well as columns that examine the craft, style, trends, and ethics of writing true stories. In short, creative nonfiction is true stories well told. Okay. At long last, here is the incomparable 
Eli Saslow. What was it about writing and maybe writing true stories that that was you found that, that you found really attractive? I think for me, I mean, I always knew that uh, that writing was something that I sort of gravitated to. My my dad is a middle school English teacher, and you know, I was I was always I always liked writing and English and reading uh, much more than I liked anything else. But but I, I don't think that it was until I was in college and sort of stumbled into the to the student newspaper at Syracuse University, and when I I kind of figured out uh, that journalism for me would be the thing, and and it was mostly not because of the writing, but because uh, you know the idea of sort of getting to spend time in other people's lives, trying to make sense of people, um, trying to write about about you know all these different experiences and perspectives with. Um, with fairness, with honesty, and also when possible with empathy, yeah, it just felt like a huge personal privilege to me. And, and I think still, you know, the, the part of the job that I value most is is the reporting, and and is um, you know these days where I kind of get to disappear into somebody else's life and 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 try to kind of figure it out and and see things that I wouldn't otherwise be allowed or, or frankly have any reason to see. Um, you know, and, and sometimes the real challenge for me is coming back and sort of translating those days onto the page in a way that it, it hopefully feels like readers can also sense that they're experiencing that in some small way too. Right. Yeah. That's, that, that is such an, an acquired, an acquired uh, skill to be able to translate that effectively and, and to not uh, hit the reader over the head too much. And, you know, you have to, uh, over time you develop a sense of restraint Um which is uh which is a skill that only really comes through repetition, I think. Um, but that that empathic that empathic way of um, folding uh, folding yourself into people's lives and likewise and vice versa. Like, where do you think that that came from? And and uh, did that, was that something you were always sort of uh, attuned to at at a younger age as well? Yeah, I think that that's always been pretty intuitive for me. I mean, just. Uh, sort of empathy or trying to, um, you know, trying, trying to, to think about other people and, and what they're dealing with and the challenges they're faced with. And, and, you know, also, you know, probably came largely from my, my parents and trying to make sure that, um, you know, I was, I was always thinking about, uh, people who were, who were a little bit unseen or, or whose challenges were flying a little bit, a little bit more under the radar. Um, and, and I think that that's been like a great, fueling uh sort of skill i hope in in my journalism is that um you know i think the stories work out or, or a book works out uh for me mostly because i genuinely care about what i'm writing about and um, not in a way where i'm rooting for an outcome or i'm i'm doing it as 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 a piece of advocacy but i i'm really invested in the people and the issues at the core of of what i'm what i'm writing and um, because i think you know for me as a journalist, if I don't care, if, if I can't, uh, if I don't feel attached to it in some way, there's no chance that a reader who never has met these people um, is is going to care or feel attached. Uh, so, so I think you know, part of it for me is even just making sure I'm choosing subjects and, and stories where uh, the interest and the enthusiasm on my end is genuine, uh, because I think that also translates into the reporting and the writing. Yeah, of course. There's a, a 
an electricity about the pros and and uh, well the reporting that that energy really comes through like when you when the writer is is into the into the material it, it definitely you can just uh, you just feel it off the page and certainly as a writer you feel it, like I'm just not feeling this um, other times and then that definitely translates to the reader uh, have you had any experience of when you had to muscle through something you weren't very like energized about and uh it just it fell flat for you for sure yeah i mean i have that experience a lot and frankly i'd say i have that stage on many of the projects that i'm working on and and sometimes you know it happens in different ways sometimes i'll be writing about somebody and uh they're you know i'm tired of them or or i really i'm not i'm not enjoying spending all all this time with them and and I, i i try to work really hard uh to find the the parts of people or the aspects of them um, that I that I am really interested in and that I do care about and to sort of focus my my attention or energy there and um, you know and then of course like in the writing process there are you know there are many times I would say for me the bulk of the writing process is sort of feeling like man this is not uh, like it's this I have such clarity on this in my head and and that clarity is not is not sort of uh, coming out in the same way on the page and you know and, and for me, that's usually just a matter of uh, realizing that that's the way it goes. Having done this for long enough to to sort of trust the fact that um, that I'll find my way to it in the end, and and to sort of just deal with the messiness uh, and and kind of embrace it. Um, because uh, you know, I, I think um, for me, feeling uncertain about something working out is like a necessary part of having it work out. That uh, that gap. The Ira Glass talks about that that gap. It's more like a career arcing thing, like where you know you have this vision of you know your taste gets you it has you here on day one, and you need to have the requisite skills to get to the other end. But you know, you know you can bridge that too and bring those poles closer together, and you just have to do that work to get to get there. So like on a micro level too, you have this idea of what the story looks like and you know, where it wants to be in that wrestling, that tension in the middle of trying to get it there is sometimes you have to just unplug. Is there anything you do to kind of step away from it and come at it fresh? You know, I I think the truth is what I often do is the opposite where I essentially force myself to work on it. And and I do that by, um, you know, I'm very lucky oftentimes in my you know, in, in a book or in my job for the, for the Washington post where my deadlines are, uh, you know, they're relatively of my own creation. Like I'm, I'm working on stuff that unfolds over a long time frame. but, but what I do is I always just sort of set a day for myself that like this story is going to be done by this day. Um, and, and then, you know, I sort of force myself to sit down and to write, even when it feels like the writing is slow or it's painful or it's not quite coming. I mean, I think for me, usually the way I figure stuff out is is through the act of the work. And 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 uh, you know, of course, like sometimes uh, you know, going for going for a trail run or like like getting away from it or walk, going for a walk and having a coffee or whatever, all of that helps. Um, but the only way I've ever figured out how to get stories to the place where I want them is by sitting and sitting down and doing the writing and doing the revising and doing the work again and again. And so I sort of just try to force myself to stick at it. Mm. And what did a successful writer look like to you when you first started? And maybe how did that evolve as you got maybe five to 10 years in your career? 
I think it evolved a lot, sometimes in ways that are, um, you know, I think at first I just wanted to be able to be a journalist and, and certainly in college. And, um, you know, I, I think this, like this career is hard and, and the, and the job opportunities are, are, uh, you know, are, are, are a little bit difficult to imagine sometimes. So, you know, I, I remember, a conversation with one of my close friends, Chico Harlan in college. Now Chico's the Rome bureau chief for the Washington Post. But Chico and I in college had a moment where we were like applying for newspaper internships. And, you know, we sent out 62 applications and been rejected so far, like 50 some places. And, and uh, you know, I had just gotten accepted to be an intern at the Star Ledger in, in Newark. Um, and I was going to be in the sports department there. And I, I met a guy there named Brad Parks, who at that point was, you know, he was in his mid thirties and he was covering the New Jersey Nets. And I remember Chico and I having a conversation just being like, man, how many breaks would have to go right? Like how great would you have to be in this business to be lucky enough to cover the New Jersey Nets for the star ledger in your mid thirties. And it was like a super, like that's, that, that was what we wanted to do. You know, like it was, um, you know, that was the bar and and the idea of being able to, to just have a job where you were writing every day and where, what you were writing mattered to people um, was, was the hope. Uh, And then of course, like as you get into jobs and you see the reality of what they look like, um, the goalposts always change. Uh, But I think one part of that, has stayed the same, which is like always feeling like I hope that what I can do is write stories that matter, not just to me, but to, to people reading them. And, and even as like the audience in my mind for those stories has changed, like it's gone from, you know, an avowed group of sports fans for one team to hoping that like, you know, people who pick up the paper and will suddenly start reading a story and invest themselves in the person they're reading about. Uh, you know, the hope is still that, um, I can find a way to write things that, that impact, uh, that impact the way people think about the world and sort of people around them. And so that, that like driving hope has remained consistent, even as the exact sort of jobs that I aspire to have, have changed over the years. And as you were developing as a young writer and young reporter, did you have a particular mentor or mentors that told that in your so your darker moments or, or would give you that pat on the back, that encouragement to say like Eli, yes, keep you know you've got it, keep keep going. It's hard, but just just keep going, keep leaning into this. You know, I didn't really. I mean, I had people that I would read um, who who were sort of like the beacons of what I thought I wanted to do. And whether that was, you know, Gary Smith or, um, or Tom Junode or, or people like that. Um, but, but I, I don't think, I think the propelling force for me was more at, at a peer level where I was really lucky, uh, in college to, you know, forge a group of friends who were all trying to do similar stuff. And basically I, I think part of what we did is we scared the shit out of each other by, by, sort of reminding each other how hard it was to get jobs, how difficult this kind of work was. Um, and we all pushed each other to, to get better at it in, in competitive ways, but also in like really supportive ways. Um, you know, and, and I think that still is that group of people is still, um, you know, a source of tons of support where we'll send each other stories that we're working on. And, you know, and, and I think for me, um, 
sort of seeking out peers who are trying to do the same kinds of stories uh, was always super, super helpful. Now, I'm incredibly lucky at The Post to have um, an editor who very much is is like a mentor and also just a really close friend um, who uh, I feel like makes me better from story to story. But that was not the case for, you know, for the first decade that I was doing this. Um, and during that time, mostly it was it was turning to friends who's ambitions were the same um, and and who were interested in doing the same kind of journalism and and kind of trying to help each other figure out how to do it is that peer network still uh still together or have people fallen off the the journalism wagon and chosen other other maybe more steady more financially fulfilling <laughs> i mean i would say Thanks. shockingly shockingly still together That's and amazing. also also somewhat shockingly you know these are mostly because I came up writing about sports, uh, these are mostly people who were who who started as sports writers. But the core group of those friends, um, you know, also like I'd say have have either defied the odds or given me some faith in the fact that uh, that journalism can work out. Because I I'm not sure all of them have taken like huge financial sacrifices. I mean, it, in college, like the the group of people that I was closest to were. Uh, a guy, Greg Bishop, who now writes for Sports Illustrated, Jeff Passan, who is like the main baseball writer for Yahoo, uh, Adam Kilgore, who now is a sports writer at the Post, Chico, who's who's in Rome for the Post, and um, you know, it, it was a really, I think, like it wasn't all coincidence because we all were pushing each other really hard, um, but uh, but I think for many of them, it it uh, it's worked out. And at what point did you start gravitating towards uh, feature writing and deeper reported stories instead of, you know, hit and run type type narratives? Pretty quickly. I mean, I, so when I first when I first came to the post, my job there was uh, it was I was writing sports, but I wasn't writing for the main paper. I was writing for like a particular neighborhood section. At that point, the post had like insert sections that would go to certain neighborhoods around the D.C. area. Um, and I was covering high school sports for, for a place called Anne Arundel County uh, in Maryland. Um, and my job was not to do feature stories or anything with much depth. I mean, I was writing, I was covering a ton of high school volleyball games and high school football games uh, and writing, you know, uh, 300 word quick, quick stories about them. Um, but I, I realized pretty quickly just for myself that, 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 uh, that wasn't the kind of journalism that I, you know, it wasn't, those weren't the stories that I had, I had, uh, I wanted to become a journalist for and, and almost for my own purpose of just like being enthusiastic about journalism and really, uh, feeling excited about what I was doing. I started on the side working on some longer features and um, not not really even pitching them to the post because i i thought that might be presumptuous but just kind of on my own time working on stories that i knew were far enough off of the map that nobody else was going to be uh, working on them at the post um, and then when i would finish the stories and get them to a place i felt good about i would tell tell my editors like hey by the way like i i also have been working on this thing uh, you know would you take a look at it? Um, I'm not sure if it's if it's going to be useful or not. Uh, but you know, some of those stories, like when they were done, the post is like, oh yeah, this this is this is pretty good. We'll we'll run this. Um, and over time, uh, as those the quality of those stories started to improve, the post also began building a little bit more time into my job to to report those kind of pieces. Um, so I, I think I gravitated to it pretty early, and and honestly, mostly just because 
it was it was those were the stories that made me excited about being a journalist. Um, you know, and, and those were the stories I sort of knew for myself that uh, that was what was going to sustain me in this business. When you know, at a time when nobody was assigning me stories that I was really excited about, I sort of had to find a way to do some stories that I felt excited about. I love the hustle of that that you did it on sort of on your own time and dime, so to speak, and then when you had something that was not quite fully realized, but pretty close, you could then show that as an audition to your editors. And then you did that on your own time, and then you showed it to them, and they're like, okay, well, we don't have to burn Eli on an assigned feature. Like, he already did it on spec, pretty much. Like, that, I love, right. I love what you did there. That's amazing. Oh, thanks. I mean, I think, like, it, uh, you know, I think and hope that a good number of people do it. I mean, you know, I think one of the issues with journalism right now is that, um, <clears throat> you know, it's journalism is the, the news cycle has become so fast. Uh, stories that used to be for the next week are now for the next day. Uh, stories that were for the next day are now for like two minutes later, get it up online. Um, and, and, you know, I think people who really care about doing this work um, mostly gravitated toward it because they wanted to do things that were meaningful and that were lasting and that were done really well. Um, and so, you know, I, I think unfortunately those are not the kind of stories that most young journalists get assigned in their career. Like you're not, you don't come out of school uh, or, or, or wherever and show up at a paper and they start assigning you like, Hey, can you spend two weeks doing this great uh, front page story? And so, you know, I, I think the only way sometimes, uh, you know, for, for, for reporters who really care about this work to stay in it is to find a way to do some of those stories that they really care about on the side. And um, because, you know, if you're, if you're in a job where it feels like you're doing things only for other people and never for yourself, um, that's a pretty quick way to, to feel discouraged or exhausted. So sometimes I think it's just, it was really, I was doing those stories because they were personally sustaining. It was like, this is why I wanted to be a journalist to do stories like this or to try to do stories like this. Um, and so I'm going to do them because otherwise I'm not going to want to do this job for very long. Yeah. That's, that's so important that you, you did it, basically to to nourish yourself on some level and and that that rigor and hustle you did when you were kind of off the clock ultimately became the work that you've now like truly made a name for yourself for thanks yeah i mean i i think um you know and and a lot of that was was uh was practicing that kind of journalism and and getting better at it. I mean, I think at first those stories were, uh, they were serviceable, the post published them. Um, but I'm sure they weren't good. And, and like anything, you know, I, I think there's no way to write great long form narrative stories if you haven't written a lot of long form narrative stories. Um, so I think now the great privilege of my job is that it enables me to really just do those kind of stories. So, um, you know, it, that, that, that facilitates a lot of, a lot of growth and improvement, I think. What do you think separated maybe some of your minor league longer stories from your the major league ones? What were those major differences that elevated it, that leveled up from where you started to where you were starting to, you know, become very well known for this, Pulitzer Prize winner for this? You know, what was that major difference? I think mostly it was reporting. I mean, learning over time that, um, you know, I, I think initially when I started out, I thought, Oh, to, to report a 2000 word story, I'm going to need to do four times as much reporting as I, as I would do for a 500 word story and, and figuring out over time that in fact, that ratio is that like, I need to do 10 or 15 times more reporting to sustain a 2000 
awkward story uh, because you're just asking a lot for a reader to stick around for that long. So I think I, I became much more vigorous in my reporting in terms of just spending more and more time with the people that I was writing about and knowing that, you know, hopefully in these kind of stories, you're, you're, you're acquiring a ton of information and, and you're only putting a fractional amount of it into the story and because you're, you're just looking for the best things. So you can almost tell how good one of these stories is by how good the material is that you're leaving in your notebook. Um, I think the other thing is something that you mentioned earlier, which is restraint, uh, realizing that sometimes the most powerful moments in a story should be quiet um, and and understanding how to structure stories around tension so that, um, you know, a, a story was not just a portrait of a moment, but a story felt like it had movement. And like we it begins with a challenge or tension. Uh, and hopefully through the story, there's some sort of resolution. Um, and, and I would say lastly, like the other part for me in these kind of narrative stories was learning that wanted, I wanted the, the reading experience to become a direct interaction as much as possible between a reader and the people they were reading about. So, so for me, that has meant structuring stories almost entirely around scene and dialogue. And so that my, my presence in the story isn't particularly felt like it, it's, it's not like there are many quotes in the story that are told to me. Um, the quotes in, in these kind of stories and in this book uh, are, are quotes that were two people talking to each other. So the, the reading experience, I hope, is almost like a little bit voyeuristic. Like it feels like you're, you're being allowed to watch something unfold in front of you. Um, and therefore, when you reach the end of a story like that, it feels like you haven't been told something, but like you've seen something or witnessed something almost for yourself. And you have you come to your own conclusions about that. And, and those conclusions, of course, stick with us much longer than things that it feels like we're just being told. That That is something that struck me when I read read your, your latest book, which is you know, a titanic feat of reporting and storytelling. It is so well done. And it was one of those books I had trouble putting down because like you you kind of know how it ends, but you want to like you don't know how it got it gets there. So it's like it was uh, that experience as a reader was in was really gripping, and that did strike me that it did feel like I didn't feel the heavy hand of the writer. It did feel fluid, effortless. Like you went through a lot of. Uh, a lot of drafts just to try to remove remove your presence as much as possible to let the story do the talking. Uh, yeah, I, I yeah. really I really appreciate you saying that. I, I, I mean, I think part of that, you know, I was so fortunate in this book um, that all of all of the documents were there. Like, I, I first of all, uh, you know, the book is based on um, so many. These conversations that existed on Stormfront, this message board uh, that, you know, Derek, the main character of the book and his father, Don, were they had a radio show every day where they were talking to each other for two hours. And I had all of those archives. And then also, you know, part of this kind of reporting is not just interviewing people, but also asking them you know, building trust so that they share all of these original documents from their lives. So for in this case, that meant 
you know, having all these college students um, share with me all of their G chats or all of their text messages so that, you know, readers can see the conversations they were having in real time rather than me just recreating them. Um, and I, I think this book was, uh, you know, it was, it was a great gift for me in that way and that the original documents existed. I, and I think part of that was writing a book that had just taken place in, in, you know, 2015 when, everybody was documenting their lives relentlessly every day. Um, it made me really appreciate how difficult it must be to, to write a historical book uh, where, you know, G chats and text messages and Facebook posts don't exist. Um, because then, of course, you you have to, you're forced to recreate dialogue and, and do these different things. Um, whereas in this book, uh, the dialogue was really all right there in front. I, that was something I had written down to ask you about. Uh how you were able to at what point did you feel comfortable like asking Allison or Derek or anybody else in their orbit be like hey can i would you mind sharing your facebook posts and you know what those conversations are are like so they feel comfortable surrendering that to you for your discretion yeah it's a great question um and the truth is you know building trust in these kind of reporting relationships uh is I would say often the most difficult and the most interesting and, and certainly the most rewarding part of the job for me. I mean, uh, you know, in, in this case, uh, the trust built really slowly. When I first reached out to Derek, uh, trying to see if I could, if I could spend with him and write this story, um, you know, his answer unequivocally was no, like it was, he'd changed his name. He'd moved to a different part of the country. There was a physical risk to him, because all of these neo-Nazis and skinheads considered him a traitor. And, you know, and also I think he just wasn't ready to, to talk about it. So, you know, over a year, slowly with emails back and forth, we built, we built up some trust to the point that he was willing to get on the phone. And then after that, to the point that he was willing to meet. But even the first time that I met him, you know, we met in a random city because he didn't want me to know exactly where he lived. Uh, we we spoke about his friends and and code names, um, you know, and and it it really just took trip after trip of showing up, uh, proving that I cared and getting it right, um, and that I was going to do everything I could toward that end to build trust, uh, you know, and and I think as a reporter I've never found a shortcut for 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 doing that, um, you know, I don't think there's a shortcut just in human relationships for building trust. Mostly it's spending time together and, and, uh, you know, and, and then once you're in person and you're spending time together, trust builds pretty quickly. And so with Derek and Allison and many of the people in the book, I didn't ask for their G chats and all of this stuff until pretty late in the process. I would say two thirds of the way through reporting. And cause I, I knew that if I asked too early, that was going to be really scary for them. Um, but I also knew that if I, if I could frame it correctly, once they did trust me, that, hey, this is going to be, rather than me trying to explain what you thought, these are the things that will allow people to understand what you thought and, and to, to understand it directly. Um, and I think that they, they realize the importance of that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think the act of, of building trust, it's, it's sometimes winning access to a story is not something that happens once. Uh, you know, you're, you're earning your way into access throughout the entire reporting process um, by being a good listener, being present in conversations, um, being genuine in, in, in caring about what you're doing. Uh, you know, and, and I think all of that um, sort of wins your way deeper into a story as you go along. 
And as you're gathering all this information, whether it's from direct interviews or getting getting these forum G chats and Facebook posts, or how are you keeping all of this straight and chronological? So you then when you started to write the book that you had it easily at your fingertips to be able to start constructing this narrative? Yeah, uh, it's a it's a question that I thought a lot about and and um, probably is an answer that's a little bit in, in the weeds of the writing process. But I think that that maybe is useful. Um, so what I did, what I did is I, I went through, you know, every every G chat conversation I had every or, or I got every interview I, I did. I basically all of these things were eventually documents on my computer that I numbered. Uh, so you know, like in the same way you would source footnotes, the the documents on my computer for the book were numbered like one through nine hundred and eighty six or whatever. Um, and then when I finished reporting and I began to structure the book, I sort of plotted out a timeline of of Derek's transformation, um, and then I went through all of these documents on my computer uh, and uh, sort of one by one plotted out the important things from these documents across this timeline, and then footnoted the timeline with like you know this important conversation that happened between Derek and Allison is in document number thirty six. Uh, and so then once I was writing the book, once I was going chapter to chapter, um, I, I instead of going back through this huge amount of source material every time. I knew like, okay, I'm writing this chapter right now about Derek's first five months on campus. Here is where all the relevant information is. Um, and it, it made it much more manageable. I mean, I think some, I know plenty of authors, uh, particularly authors who do like narrative nonfiction reported work who use, uh, you know, computer programs and, and different tools to help them organize their notes. Um, I think for me, this is just the way I've always done it. So I'm almost scared to do anything differently. And I'm sure there were parts of it that were like unnecessarily arduous. Uh, but it, it was also like, I knew it would work. I had sort of faith in, in having done it before. So I, I just stuck with it. What were the conversations like early on with Allison? And she's in so many ways, the soul of this book. And you, I don't think you have a book without her. And you were able to, of course, get her because she's kind of the the conscious of conscience of this book. And uh, what were those conversations like early on to get her on board with with this project? Yeah, I mean, so I, I initially wrote uh, a Washington Post story that was like six thousand words about Derek, um, and in that story, at that time. Allison was not ready to be public. I mean, the same safety risks that apply to Derek apply to her. And, you know, and, and I also think she feels conflicted in some ways about, about her, her role. And, and, um, you know, she just, she didn't know me well enough. She didn't, she, she'd never talked to a journalist before. She was actually very helpful in the reporting of that story and that she kind of gave me uh, a few emails that, that Derek had sent to her and things like that. But she, did not want to be in it. Um, so, you know, I knew that if I was going to keep, keep on reporting and have it be a book that, that you're exactly right. Like she needed to be a big part of it. She was, she sort of is the bridge between, uh, the old Derek and the new Derek. Um, she still is like the closest person to him in his life. And, uh, you know, like, like she, she also debated the facts of, of his really messed up 
racist ideas with him to an extent that almost nobody else did. And in addition to doing these really dramatic things like going undercover with him to white nationalist conferences. Um, so I knew that I needed Allison. Uh, and, and, you know, really what I did is I just had a really candid upfront conversation with her explaining why I thought it was important to, you know, to, to keep reporting and writing about this and do full justice to the story, explaining why I thought I couldn't do that. Uh, I couldn't do the story right and truthfully without her because she's too crucial to it. Um, you know, and then, uh, left the decision to her, which, um, the truth is like, that's often the position that we're in as, as journalists or as writers, um, doing reported work is in the end, like we try the best we can to, uh, to explain to, to people why we want to write about them. And sometimes they say no. Um, and, and that's okay. Like that's their right. That's, um, it should be their right. Uh, and in this case, I knew I couldn't do it without Allison. And if she had said, you know, I don't see the value in this, I'm not going to do it. Then I would have, you know, gone on to the next thing I was going to write about. Um, but I, I think at that point, Allison did know me, did, did trust me more. Um, and over the course of a few weeks of conversations about why I thought it was important. Uh, you know, I think she began to see why it was important too. Um, and, and then said that she felt comfortable. Um, similarly with Derek's father, Don Black, I knew that I, I really needed, uh, I needed, I, I needed to be able to spend more time with him in order to write the book I wanted to write. And so I had those conversations up front too. Uh, you know, I think sometimes it's, um, for me, part of the reporting process is being really transparent on the front end, uh, and explaining to people what it will be like for, to have me reporting on, on them and, you know, and, and, uh, kind of laying out the ground rules, uh, or the process in, in a really transparent way on the front end. Um, because that just reduces some of the anxiety and the questions and the uncertainties on the back end. When I recently spoke with Earl Swift about his recent book, Chesapeake Requiem, uh, he, he was talking about, you know how he it, similarly he spent a lot of time with these Tangierman crab crab uh, uh, crabbers on a disappearing island in Chesapeake Bay. Right. He he said that the to be a fly. I'm paraphrasing, but like the secret to being a fly on the wall was actually not being was actually always having the notebook out. It was always being transparent. They always knew that he was there for a job. He was the reporter. He was the writer. And uh, eventually, because the notebook was out, this once intrusive thing from day one, he eventually did blend into the background over time. That's kind of what you're saying, too, is like you're upfront and transparent. And that kind of engendered trust instead of having these conversations and then like running off to a bathroom stall, scribble some notes and then go back and keep talking. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think like it's, um, you know, I'm asking for so much from the people that I write about. Uh, I'm asking for like honesty, uh, like, like real, um, like candor and transparency about really difficult moments. Like the, the, the least I can do is repay that by being honest and transparent with them. Um, and, and I, I do think that that's, that is, uh, that is also helpful in the disappearing from, from moments. I mean, it's, it's, um, you know, I also have a notebook out all the time at first, that's sort of strange for people, but pretty quickly, if you're around enough, uh, people stop thinking about the notebook. I mean, I, I would say the other, the other key for me and, in, in sort of being able to disappear a little and, and observe more is, um, 
is trying to be there during moments in people's lives where they have something going on that's more important than you being there chronicling it. And, you know, like if I'm writing about people uh, and like their kid just got shot and, and, and they're trying to sort of find a way for that kid to recover, mostly when they're in a doctor appointment with that kid, the fact that I'm there is not going to be the main part of that doctor appointment. Like they're trying to, they're trying to fix their kid. There's something more, more pressing happening. Um, so I also think sometimes if you can find a way to, to be there when there are really intense moments happening, it, it makes it much more natural to disappear into them. That that's incredible. How, how do you get yourself into that moment? And so you can fold into the back, like just disappear into the background. I think like it's, um, you know, so many people mostly want the same thing, which is to be seen, you know, and, and to, to feel like the experiences that they're going through, especially when they're really hard experiences, um, to feel like they matter and, and that they're not going through them, uh, in, in alone in a way that, that is totally unimportant, but, um, but that people are, are acknowledging what's happening. Uh, and, and so, you know, what I'm often telling people when I want to write about them is I'm hoping to do just that. Like I'm, I'm hoping to write about people's lives in a way that uh, just for a few minutes, maybe somebody in some different part of the country can experience in some fractional way what it's like to be going through that thing. Um, and so in order to do that, I need to be there to see it all. You know, and, and I think in the end, it's, it's kind of framing it to people and explaining it in a way in, in which like me being there during, during hard moments is not, uh, it's, it's in service of the story that eventually does them justice and does justice to what they're, what they've been through, what they're going through, what they will go through. Um, it's, it's not, it's not me asking for something, um, for any reason other than it's in service of, of, of them being seen and being seen accurately. Um, and, and I think usually that's, that's compelling to people. Like they, they want to, they want to be seen in a truthful and accurate way. Um, and so, you know, in that way, I think, um, people start to feel comfortable having you there during otherwise really uncomfortable times. Um, because they also understand that's the whole point. That's the whole point is for me to be there to see things that other people wouldn't usually see. Um, because that's the only way that, uh, people can build connections, um, with, with people they're reading about. Did it take you a long time to get comfortable asking people to allow you that kind of intimate access? Yeah, it did. Um, but I, I think like for me, the turning point was in realizing that I was the one who was sort of afraid to ask for it. Um, and, and often it was me putting my own limitations on, on access um, rather than, you know, the, the truth is like the most fair thing. And I think the best thing for the people we're writing about is, uh, is to be there for as much as we can be there for. And so once I realized that actually I'm, I'm doing this person a favor by asking, they can say no. Um, they can totally tell me, no, I don't want you to come to this. I don't want you to be there for this. Uh, but once I, I sort of change my thinking and feeling like, wow, what I'm asking them is a huge imposition to instead thinking, you know, what I'm asking them is going to help me get the story right. And of course, me getting the story right is better for everybody involved. And then I just got less hesitant about saying like, hey, I think it's really important that I'm there for this. Uh, you know, and, and um, I think once I was less hesitant, uh, you know, I began to realize 
it was I often wasn't seeing things because I was afraid to ask to see them um, rather than just asking and not being not being afraid to be to be told no I'm sorry like I'm not comfortable with that which is totally fine and that happens in my reporting plenty that's a uh... That's such a great point to make, uh, and it, it gets to the the point of like ha- limiting beliefs and limiting self talk. That oftentimes, like once you learn that they were probably, let's just throw out a number, like eight out of ten are okay with you being there for everything. But as soon as you rephrased it in in a way and, and rephrased the question about about why you want to be there. All of a sudden, it, it's empowering and allows you allows you to make that deeper dive. And it was really you limiting yourself and your potential versus what you were thinking your sources were thinking. If that makes any sense. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I think it it is. Um, yeah, it's it's uh, some sometimes it's it's us as journalists or as writers who who are who are the ones putting limitations on things um, and and. You know, I'm sure I still do that in plenty of ways, um, but I've I've tried to be cognizant at least about the times where it's me that is uh, that's tentative or afraid to ask for something. And uh, getting getting back to Allison, there was um uh, in, in the book there was a part there was a passage I I uh, I highlighted because it, it it spoke to something I wanted to ask you directly, and she in a, in a way illustrates it, and I, I'm just going to read it real quick. Um, it was a part you wrote where uh, she watched documentaries about the Klan and read through hundreds of messages on Stormfront. It was also upsetting, so ugly and revolting that some days it made her nauseated at her desk. And throughout all this book, because it's just such ugly, ignorant racism that the the world of the white nationalists that that they're broadcasting, and you were so deeply immersed in this, listening to broadcasts, uh, reading this stuff, talking to white nationalists. And I, I wonder how you didn't get pulled down into the dark when you were so deeply immersed in such ugly, ugly, uh, such an ugly world. Yeah, it's, it's a, it's a great question. Um, I, I mean, I think for me, part of it was, um, the fact that I knew the story that I was telling while it traveled through a huge amount of darkness. And um, first of all, like, I think it's essential for America to understand that darkness because like these, you know, these problems, not just white nationalism, but like our country's problematic racial history uh, and our problematic racial present um, mm-hmm. is a huge, a huge problem that we need to confront. So my hope in traveling through the darkness and, and being able to hopefully explain it and bring it a little bit into the light is that it will make, it will make it more clear that we need to confront it. Um, the other thing was I knew that there were other parts of the story that were ultimately redemptive and, and people in the story who, uh, you know, the book is, is at least in part the story of the incredible acts of courage from all of these other people, sometimes people who are the victims of Derek's prejudices, who find these different ways to engage, whether that's by protesting and sort of like uh, shutting down the school to to protest his ideas, which was really effective, or by reaching out to him and inviting him over to Shabbat dinners or debating the flawed science of white nationalism, national, nationalism with him. You know, there was um, there was real courage and real 
heart in in the story too. So I, I think like if it had if I had just been writing something that just traveled into the dark hole of white nationalism and racism and America's screwed up uh, racist history, um, it would have been probably. It, first of all, it just wouldn't have been a good book because it's you're you're taking people into a place that that is um, you know that's just really difficult to read about. Uh, but also, it would have been it would have been so taxing for me. And and I think the fact that I knew uh, I knew that there were these other parts of the story that that allowed for um, for hope, like real hope in ways, uh, made it so that traveling through the darker parts was was manageable. I mean, that said, I will say that you know for a year, every time I would go for a run, I would be listening to Derek and Don talk in these old radio shows um, about these really upsetting ideas. And one of the great gifts of being done reporting the book is that now, like, I don't have to listen to that anymore. <laughs> so, right. uh, so certainly there's, there's some relief in that. Uh, uh, on those runs, where did you have a, a little notebook with you in case they said something like, oh, that'll probably be good for the book, and you would, like, scribble something down? Yeah, or I would just, like, do a little voice note into my phone um, about about something to, uh, to, 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 to like, note for later. Um, but also, like, part of it, frankly, was just as simple as knowing I needed to marinate in that world a little bit in order to – in order to understand it and, and sort of write about it, uh, with nuance. So sometimes, you know, I'd listen to an hour and a half show and it wasn't that I was writing down anything or going to be quoting from anything, but it was just, you know, marinating in that helped me begin to understand how they saw everything, you know, so that I could predict the white nationalist reaction to almost any news event. Mm. What struck me about your book too, um, it reminded me of, in 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 a way, uh, Dave Eggers's uh, Zaytun or Zaytun, um, how it illustrated the catastrophe around Hurricane Katrina without being judgmental, and there was definitely instances where you could, where the author could have laid down judgment o- over what was going on. Instead, he just let the story play out. And similarly with your book, with this material, and especially for most people who don't agree with it, you had every reason and probably a right at some point to be very judgmental about this and to and to shun it. But instead, you just you just let the story speak for itself. So, how did you get to that point where you were just going to let it play out and not imbue your worldview on the story? I, I think, like especially in this story, uh, I was. I realized pretty early on that um, the facts, uh, when when outlaid correctly and powerfully, are the greatest challenge to these uh, to these really awful ideas. And so, rather than writing a polemic where I'm telling readers, uh, you know, racism is harmful and bad, um, right. it's 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 more effective for me to show all the ways in which it's been hugely damaging in the world and like the, the, the science of how discrimination impacts people's lives and people's health. Um, that that's much more powerful. Um, and it's also much more factual. Uh, so, you know, and the other thing is realizing that, um, you know, I was trying to write about some of these people, particularly Derek's father, Don Black, who still is very much at the, the top of the white nationalist movement. Um, I was trying to write about him, uh, when possible with the humanity that he so often had denied other people. Um, and, and doing that not to forgive anything that he's done, 
but just because it's more true. I mean, I, I think sometimes we like to believe that people who are capable of doing real evil are like these cardboard villains. Um, but I think what's much more scary um, and also just more real is that in many ways, these are people very much like us who are capable of doing really terrible things and coming to disastrous conclusions. Um, and, and so, you know, it, for Don in particular, that made him a really complicated character in the book because he, uh, he has caused huge amounts of real damage in the world and he asks for and deserves no forgiveness for any of it. Uh, there's no redemption for him in the book because he still believes all the terrible things that he's believed. Uh, <clears throat> but the other truth is, He's a he's also a dad who loved his kid more than anything in the world and, and sort of experienced Derek's transformation essentially like a death. Um, and I, I think that that was really important for readers to understand because otherwise readers don't quite understand how difficult it was for Derek to ultimately change his mind about this um, and become public on the other side. So, you know, for that reason, I knew Don needed to be a really full character in the book. Um, and I also knew the facts of, D of Don's life, uh, you know, rather like after Derek leaves this ideology, um, Don, there's a moment where it seems like maybe Don is going to see, see the light a little bit too. And instead he begins a, a mentoring relationship with Richard Spencer and that, yeah. that action and explaining that, how that happens in the book is much more powerful than me saying Don is still bad and believes bad things. Um, you know, the fact that he, he then reaches out to Richard Spencer to help plan these catastrophic events, uh, says that in a much more powerful and I think much more interesting way. Yeah. You get a, a sense of how, uh, it's kind of eerie and creepy in a way that where, you know, you get Chloe and Don who are like super sweet to Allison who they don't really have a feel on yet. You know, they send her like, you know, a gift card to like get a massage. And then when Derek renounces white nationalism, Don has his moments of like, maybe I, maybe I was wrong. And then, and right. then to have him totally like the, you know, when Trump is elected, it, it gave permission to a lot of a lot of these these ideas, and then for him to then take up uh, a mentoring relationship with Spencer, it, it it illustrates your point perfectly of how like maybe like seemingly decent people on the surface are harboring some really nasty bile underneath, and it's kind of chilling in a way. Yeah, for sure, and I, you know, I mean, I think that's also I think more true to the real problem that the country is facing. I mean, there's. The, the stat that often stands out to me from reporting this book is these polls that consistently show that you know, 30 to 40 percent of white people in the country believe they experience more discrimination, uh, more prejudice than people of color, which is wildly inaccurate by, by every factual measure that we have. But the fact that there is all of this you know, latent racism and this sense of grievance and um, false grievance in parts of white America is what empowers these ideas and, and makes it a real threat to our country. And it's what elects uh, people into huge positions of power who who are doing a lot of racist dog whistling. And so, yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, I, I think um, the truth is that it's people are really complicated, you know, and, and writing about writing about people, but also problems with nuance and, and with the, the complexity that they deserve, I think is, first of all, it's just more rewarding to a reader and more interesting. Um, it's also more true. Like Don Black, he's, he, uh, 
he's not he is not a cardboard villain. He's he's much more complicated than that. And also, I think it's much more interesting to read about the complications and the contradictions within people than it is to read uh, sort of a a a, a one sided screed that comes from a really hard viewpoint. Mm. So in the process of writing the book and even a lot of your longer features, which let's face it is just about all your features, you know, take a lot of time reporting, organizing. How are you setting up your days? You know, what's your morning routine to kind of warm up to this stuff? And then how do you go about the work on a given day? I think it's, uh, it's usually a ton of reporting. I mean, so I have, I have three, we have three pretty little kids. So, uh, I try to, you know, I, I drop, drop them off at school and then, um, and then really start making calls. I mean, for me, a huge part of the reporting process is what I would almost call pre-reporting where I'm, I have a notion of an idea and I'm spending, uh, a large amount of time figuring out, uh, you know, where is the best place to tell a story? Who who are the best potential characters? What is the best time to be with those people? Um, so so once I actually decide, all right, I'm going to write about you know this person going through this situation. I've I've had similar conversations with ten other people, um, people who will never show up in the story, but all of those conversations inform my knowledge about the issue, and they also make me feel like once I'm really starting the in-person reporting, I'm with the right person at the right time. And so a big part of the days is working through the process of trying to figure out like who exactly, where exactly, and when exactly. And that's, that's a large part of the reporting time. That, uh, it's, it's an interesting point that some of this nonfiction and a long form storytelling there, there is an element of, choreography and and casting so to speak uh that goes on with this which is something that you don't necessarily associate with nonfiction. that you would be selective of one subset of possible sources over another like uh how, how did you come with that and get comfortable with that like the this particular family is going to be better illustrating the overall story that i'm trying to get at yeah, I think um, that's a great that, that's a great question because I do think that that some people would consider it almost a a contradiction. But the truth is, our job as journalists is we have to choose. Like there are there are an unlimited number of stories to tell, um, and it's our job to figure out which are the ones uh, that are worth sort of spending and investing our time in. And um, so I think part of the way I landed on this process is just the fact that I, I write these stories for the Washington Post where, you know, something being a great story alone um, is not is not necessarily enough. Um, and, and I don't think it's also it's not enough for me either. What I want is a great is a great story that is connected to the national moment and reveals something about it in a way that that feels new and revelatory. And um, so that means that I'm often First, starting with ideas about what are the big issues or pressure points in the country, and whether that's white nationalism or whether that's uh, you know immigration and something that's happening on the border, or whether it's heroin addiction. And I'm looking for like what are the big pressure points? What are the things that are new happening in those pressure points? And what are the ways that I can go and write about them in a way that feels intimate? and real um, and kind of illuminates these big problems in our country in a way that just stories about the data um, or the DC perspective on things never does. Um, 
So, you know, that, that means that I'm, uh, I'm often almost reporting my way through a funnel, like where I start with the big, with the big idea, uh, through reporting and first talking to issue experts, policy experts, I kind of hone the idea and figure out exactly what I'm looking for. And then, begin calling and talking to people and trying to see who is experiencing this in a way right now that will feel immediate and personal to people reading the story. And so, you know, that's, uh, that's often, I guess, the choreography that's involved is, is, you know, sort of, um, yeah, casting about for, for, for the right story that will have tension um, and also that will, that will reflect uh, in an accurate and representative way kind of some of these big issues in the country. Mm. And when you're getting down to the, the writing of, of a story, um, what is your, your stamina, so to speak? Like how long can you write in a day without getting uh, tired? I think that I, I, uh, I sort of write in short bursts um, and then step away, but, but sometimes we'll write for long hours in a day. So, I, you know, I might spend 14 hours in a day sort of, staring or thinking about a story a little bit. Um, but during that time, I'm also stepping away for, you know, to pick up kids or go for a run or, you know, I'm, I'm spacing it out that way. And usually like I try to think of it more in terms of like, I want to write a section this day, or, you know, sometimes that's, that's a certain number of words. Like, all right, I've got, I've got 1200 words to write today. Um, and you know, some days that takes five hours of like, concentrated writing or three hours, it comes really fast and, and I feel good about it and it's in good shape. And other days it takes 15 hours and it's super painful. And it's like, man, I've spent so many times rewriting the sentence. Um, but I, I sort of just try to force myself to put in whatever amount of time it takes to sort of hit the, hit that, that, that goal for the day. And when you're in the throes of this process, how are you fighting off loneliness and, and self-doubt since I, I suspect you do a lot of your writing at home? Yeah. I mean, I, particularly with a book, it's hard because, you know, you're, you're, the writing process lasts for so long. You know, it's in the, in the case of this book, which I think, you know, in terms of a book was, was relatively fast, but it, it was still, you know, four solid months of like go, go and write every day. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think for me, I try to like, I definitely create a schedule for myself, but I build in breaks that schedule. So it's like, all right, this day, I'm just going to like totally take off or, or these two days, I'm, I'm just going to try not to think about it. Um, you know, and, and I think I, I have tried to get better at, um, setting, setting a project down for, for, for a while and trusting that I'll, be able to come back to it. And for, for a long time, especially early on uh, in my career, I think if I was writing a story that took three days to write, I would sort of be in like the cloud of that story entirely for those three days, um, which which I almost felt like was necessary to the writing process. Like, well, I just need to be rolled up in this the entire time. Uh, and, um, you know, I think like it just wasn't the best way to live a life. I also don't think it was like necessarily in service to those stories. I've gotten much better, I think through writing books because like you just, you know, I wouldn't be, I would not be a, the, the father or husband or person or friend that I wanted to be if, if for six months, like I, I was just in the clouds of writing something. Um, so, you know, I, it forced me to get a lot better at, at saying, okay, like I'm, I'm done for the day. Uh, I will think about this again in the morning. Um, and that, that has been like a great, gift to, to sort of 
learn how to trust myself enough to know I can let this go and I'll be able to pick it back up. Mm. What would you identify as particular strengths that you have as a reporter and a writer and then maybe some some weaknesses too that uh that that kind of needle at the back of your brain sure um the weaknesses i think like my sentence to sentence writing i always feel like could be much better um, and they're just writers who i read who uh their sentences are so beautiful um and uh i often think that like my sentences are purposeful and hopefully effective um but not uh just like really lyrical beautiful sentences is something that i would like to be able to to write um you know i think in terms of things that i feel pretty confident in um i think structure is like such a huge key to to narrative work um thinking about pacing and uh you know intention and and where where to build tension, where to resolve it, um, you know, and, and I think that that's something that I feel pretty confident in. In part, just probably built up by the repetitive act of of doing stories like this. Um, you know, I, I feel pretty confident in structure, and I, and I think that that's really helpful. Um, I also think that like I, uh, you know, the act of connecting with the people that I write about and building up trust in those relationships is. Um, you know, it, it's that it almost doesn't feel journalistic. It just feels like being a person and and um, and and building up relationships and building up trust. And that's that's something that I feel uh, feel pretty confident in. Um, so uh, in general, I would say I'm a much more confident reporter than than I am a writer. Uh, you know, I, I think um, reporting is is uh, the days when I'm out like kind of spending time with people feel like very natural um, and the days when I'm like in the library uh, fighting sentences definitely sometimes feel a little bit more like work. Mm. You know, you were talking about, uh, you know, certain, certain writers who have a very lyrical way uh, of writing and uh, you know, that's something you admire. Um, who are, who are maybe some of those writers that you, that you've got on your bookshelf, maybe books you reread from time to time. You're like, ah, that's, that's how it's done. And uh, if I'm really cracking, that's what I hope to get to. Yeah. I mean, there, there are so, uh, there are so many. Um, but, uh, I mean, I guess in terms of newspaper work, uh, even like, you know, people who, who, whose work I really admire, who, who, uh, who have worked at the post Anne Hull is, is like an amazing lyricist sentence to sentence. Um, Stephanie McCrumman, who I work with, I feel like writes really beautiful sentences, but also just in terms of, of, um, you know, novels and, and, uh, my own reading habits and the things that I, that I really enjoy. I mean, just, um, I was just reading, uh, like everybody else in the world, uh, like, uh, little fires everywhere, the Celestine book, which, um, which is just like, uh, an amazing sense to sentence writing feat. I feel like in ways that I can't, um, I can't, I, that are, that are beyond me. Uh, you know, I, I think my own reading habits definitely skew a little bit more toward uh, toward fiction, especially especially lately. Um, and and part of that is because I'm just trying to improve my my sense sentence writing, uh, and and I think that that's like a great way to learn how to do that. In uh, a, a you, you know, you mentioned um, Celeste Ng's book. Um, are there any other uh, books of that you that you like to return to again just to kind of, as a refresher of how 
of what the language and sentence to sentence structure can be like? I think, um, I mean, recently, like uh, Jasmine Ward, like her, I feel like her sentences are, are sometimes stunning. Um, you know, but books that I like always go back to that are a little bit more related to, to my own work and what I'm trying to do, like, um, you know, the things they carried, uh, so many of those stories are like, little masterpieces that, um, that I, I call back to, uh, sometimes when I'm thinking about how to write a section, there's one story in there about, you know, uh, a soldier coming back home and driving around a lake on the 4th of July, um, that I've, I've read so many times as I try to figure out, uh, like how to, how to, how to allow for movement in sections that otherwise don't have it. Um, things like that. Um, you know, uh, like, Crack Hour into the Wild is a book that I I I adore and feel like it's just a tight, really good story. And you mentioned Zaytun, but I think that's a good example too. I mean, it, it's one of the things for me in writing this book that was really interesting is the rules of nonfiction, and particularly when it comes to dialogue, are not are not really that clear, right? Like I had I had the great luxury in this book of um, I was only quoting things. There were that I had I had evidence of them being quotes like they had people had said them to each other in G chats or on the radio or whatever else. Um, but I think one thing in writing this book that became in some ways more confusing and complicated to me is looking back at all of these books I really loved and admired and realizing that um, you know the quotes were recreated necessarily so because there was no you know there were no documents to pull from um, but just. Like then going, thinking about, um, you know, recreating dialogue, uh, of course, we never know exactly what anybody said unless we, we were there to hear it or there's a record of them saying it. And so sometimes like one of the complications early on in this for me was just realizing, wow, like all of these, all of these books deal with this problem in these really different ways. Um, and that was really interesting to me. Mm. Over the course of your your career, uh, how have you avoided, or maybe if you haven't avoided it, uh, coped with feelings of jealousy and, and competition among peers? Uh, it's definitely a real feeling, and I love getting someone's impressions of how they deal with that, if they deal with it at all. What a, what a great question. Uh, I don't think I've ever been asked that before, and I'm really glad that you did. Um, I, I think that, that I... Uh, I mean, I'm in general, I'm pretty good at trying really hard to focus on the things that I can control. Uh, like it just anything else, of course, is like a, a useless exercise uh, and, and kind of a waste of energy. Um, but that's it's way easier said than done to just focus on the things that you can control and to not pay attention to, you know, other 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 books that are doing great or stories that are doing really well. Um, but I guess the other thing that is to me uh overrides or i hope at least in my best moments overrides any feelings of like envy or jealousy is first realizing like i'm insanely privileged in 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 my job and in the work that i get to do yeah and and you know i i'm in a position where if my stories have shortcomings uh the only thing i can blame for them is myself because i i have like a incredible um, latitude to pursue the, the stories that I want to pursue. So that, that's one thing is just like, what right do I have to be jealous of, of anybody really? Like I'm, I'm just in such a lucky position. And, and the other thing is 
Like there's, uh, I, I care super deeply about narrative nonfiction journalistic work. That's really good. And the truth is there's not an abundance of that. It's not, it's not like, um, so anytime something is really good, like that's a, a, a real and genuine part of me feels like I'm so happy for that. That's, that's really great. Like it's in part, even just from my own, like wanting to have an industry in this that I can continue to work in and wanting for this craft to continue to matter. And particularly in newspapers, there's not a lot of stories built on dialogue and scenes. So when I see one, my, my reaction, uh, I'm sure there's a little bit of jealousy or envy sometimes, but mostly it's like, yes, like I'm so glad that places are still doing this because maybe that means other people will see the value of it. And in this diffuse way, I will get to continue to do it for longer. And so I think I try to remind myself of that. Like it's also, it's in our industry, it's, um, there's, there's not like a limited resource of great stories just, just because somebody else writes something great or gets like acknowledged for writing something great does not in any way impact my own ability to write something great uh, or get acknowledged for doing something that was really worthwhile. And so I I think those are all ways that I kind of try to push back at myself in that way. The last one that I would say is just, I think as journalists, we are so, we're so lucky or as writers, we're so lucky to do a job that's public. And, and when we write something, other people see it and we get told all the time, like, Hey, like, I'm glad you wrote that. That was really good. That was nice. Uh, and, and most jobs are not so public facing, like they don't work that way. My parents who were both teachers, it's not like they were constantly getting notes from like outside people saying, I'm so glad you're a teacher. Wow. This is really <laughs> valuable work. Like it's, so I, I feel like we are already spoiled by feedback. Um, and, and to sort of ask for more of it, uh, is, um, it, it's just not fair. Like we, we, we get, uh, we, we're lucky to have people tell us like, Oh, I like listening to that. I like seeing that. And that happens to us. And to most people that doesn't happen. So those, those are the ways I, I kind of try to push back against my own feelings sometimes, which of course happen like to anybody else of seeing like, Oh man, that story is going wild on Twitter. Uh, I wish I'd written it. <laughs> it, because the, the work you invest in your stories is, is so extensive and intensive. What, like what is your so your your mindset and your approach to it and what kind of still excites you about it to get those slow gears rolling as you gear up for for another big story like how do, how does how do you get psyched up for that everyone can sort of feel a little bit like climbing a mountain and i think like the challenge of my job sometimes or this kind of work is feeling like um you know I'm always starting again from the very base of the mountain. Like I finish something uh, like this book or like a story. And then, you know, I'm not, I'm not continuing to cover a beat in that subject area. I'm figuring out, okay, what's the next thing that I can begin from the very beginning and try to again, uh, have it, have it turn into something good. So there's like that feeling of being in between can be a little bit fatiguing just because, you know, I understand that it's hard. Like it's, it's hard to like get one of these projects to the point where it works out and it feels like it's worked out. Um, but I think the thing that keeps me really interested and engaged is first of all, the stories and the, and, and the subjects are so different every time, which, which is engaging in and of itself, but also the interpersonal challenges of reporting and building these relationships and existing in this space in people's life. It like that part 
only gets more complicated, I think, for me anyway, as time goes on. Like it's um, the, just figuring out how to ethically sort of do a job like this um, is really interesting and really engaging and really hard and, and never easy. I, I think like things things start to feel boring when they're easy. And, you know, the truth is uh, like building building this kind of trust never feels easy. Um, so that that part always keeps me really interested. What are you better at today than you were maybe <clears throat> five years ago? I'm, I'm way more careful um, in, in a way that I think is, uh, is really good for stories. Like I, I think I think a lot more about um, accuracy and fairness. And, and so like in some ways that's the very basic like, man, I don't want to have a mistake in the story. I'm going to read it six more times. Um, in other ways, it's just thinking about like the fairness even of things – as subtle as like where I end stories. I mean, for a lot of the people that I'm writing about, it's the one time they're going to be written about. And it's, it's in this really public way. Um, and I'm sort of choosing at least in the public space where their story is going to end. And that, that's like a, it's a big responsibility to have, right? Like you're, you're kind of deciding where you're going to leave people off, um, in, in the public space. Uh, and so I think even in terms of stuff like that, I just, I've realized the weight of these stories in people's lives more. Um, and, and not in a way that wants me to, that, that makes me want to be more, you know, more, more gentle or more favorable to them, but just in a way that makes me acknowledge how important it is for me to get it right. And, and I, I think I've sort of invested that back into the work and, and tried to be really, rigorous in myself, um, you know, over these last five years uh, about making sure that when a story is published, I feel good about every part of it. Mm. Well, that's amazing, Eli. I, out of respect for your time, of course, I'd li- I, I feel like I could talk to you for another two hours. This is a, a ton of fun. And um, where, where can people find you online, Eli, and get more familiar with your work if they're not already familiar with it? Uh, I'm on Twitter, although I'm not very active, but it's Eli Saslow. Uh, I also, I do have a website that just has compiled most of my, uh, a lot of my stories and, and, um, and things like that, which is just Eli Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm so appreciative to you for your time and, and also for doing these podcasts. I think they're, they're an incredible resource to me and also I know to others. So thank you for that. Um, and also you're close by. So just next time you're up here, shoot me a note and, and we'll, we'll grab beers. Oh, fantastic. There's no shortage of great IPAs to enjoy up in this neck of the woods. So we'll have to do that sometime. <laughs> yeah, I, w- I would love it. Seriously, man. Just, just let me know. Um, it would be fun. Well, that was satisfying. Don't you think? Thanks very much to the show's sponsors, Goucher College's MFA program in nonfiction and Creative Nonfiction Magazine. Of course, thanks to Eli Saslow. How great was that? Be sure to check out all of Eli's work over at his website and buy a book, would you? Hard book, Kindle book, it doesn't matter. Buy books. Buy them, give them away. Be an advocate for great reading and great writing while I've got your attention I'd ask if you dig the show share it with a friend subscribe and leave an honest review over on Apple Podcasts they're a big big help and I'm deeply appreciative of whatever you can do to help the show fact is you're here 
that's what matters. But if you can do a little extra and ice the cake, that'd be a big, big help. Visit brendanomera.com to sign up for my monthly reading list newsletter. Great books and great podcasts. Once a month, no spam. Can't beat that. I'm at Brendan O'Mara on Twitter. You can always email me at the website. Just look that up. Super simple. Got any questions about writing or reading or whatever it is you like, I'm here to help. I think that's a wrap. Remember, if you can't do interview, see ya!